Hi, everyone, and welcome to On the Nose, the podcast of Jewish Currents. This is Ari Brostoff. I'm the culture editor at Jewish Currents, and I'm filling in today for our regular host, Ariel Angel. And I have with me two guests. Vicki Osterweil is a writer, editor, and agitator based in Philadelphia. And Kay Gabriel is a writer, teacher, and organizer who lives in Queens. We're here today to talk about a book called Let the Record Show, which is a history of the AIDS activist organization ACT UP by the writer Sarah Shulman and some of the historical and theoretical and political questions that the book brings up. Vicky wrote a review of the book that appears in the fall issue of Jewish Currents, and Kay wrote a letter to the editor that we published in response. So we're returning to the book today in the wake of a little bit of a controversy that ensued after Vicky's review came out. The book was widely acclaimed when it came out earlier this year, but Vicky's review was critical and Sarah Shulman wound up being quite displeased with it and her displeasure at some point became public and was even reported on uh, and became sort of a flashpoint on the internet for a minute earlier this fall. We're actually not going to be really talking about that controversy today. What we're hoping to do instead, and and the reason we're here today, is to redirect the conversation to highlight the really substantive questions and debates brought up by the book and about the book that may have gotten a little bit buried um, sort of in this other conversation. So I just wanted to thank Vicky and Kay so much for joining us today to try and think through some of those questions out loud. Thanks so much for having me here. This is a wonderful conversation. Vicky, it's great to talk to you. Thanks. It's uh, it's really nice to be here and to be talking about uh, these questions, which, which I think are so important. So I guess maybe if we can just kind of start by laying out for those who haven't read Vicky's review and maybe aren't familiar with any of this, Vicky, do you want to say what the book is about, how you understand it? And just kind of lay out for us, like, what was your reaction to it? Like, what was your original response to it that you were then kind of writing through in your review? So yeah, the book is, it's called A Political History on the cover. It's a history of ACT UP New York, um, which was a direct action AIDS activism and research group. The book is based mostly in, on oral histories that Sarah Shulman has done. And it goes sort of, you know, not exactly chronologically. It's broken up by sort of sections about the research and direct action and the forms of organization. And the, there's chapters about, you know, women and ACT UP and all these. And, and But it does sort of move chronologically. And it's a really big culmination of decades of work of both activism and research that uh, Shulman has been engaged with and has often been um, a very important and vocal supporter and producer of that work. I think it deserved a lot of attention for what it was and that like that like I think we we should be giving as much attention as it got to most works of movement history. I think that the questions it asked are really important but I also had a lot of problems with the way it framed the movement, as I'm sure most listeners will know, AIDS activism was, you know, especially in the 80s and 90s, in the context of basically a, a genocide. It was it was horrible. Um, it was in constant death and struggle. And so there's a lot of, of tension around 
how do we depict that history? Because so many of the activists were lost at the time, and it was so, it's so serious and so painful. And also, Sarah Shulman was a participant in that movement, and I think you know, and these these people are her friends, and she's worked with them for a long time. That's not a problem. The problem is that 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 means that I think there's a lot of nostalgia perhaps but also a desire a desire to see those comrades be sort of elevated and respected and honored for what they did which again i understand that i think in the book sometimes leaned over into a a real over over claim that like act up is the best way that change can happen and i also disagreed with a lot of sentiments in the book about how sort of leadership works and organizing works. And we can get into that, into the nitty gritty of that. The thing that ended up being, I think, both the cause of the controversy and the bigger point, and what made me most sort of emotional in response to it was the real like absence of a discussion of trans women in particular and trans people in general in the AIDS crisis. The first moment where trans women are brought up, um, it's brought up to talk about this TV show Pose from 2017-18, where um, black trans women are depicted being arrested at an action where um, it does it is pretty clear in the historical record that they weren't actually present. And my response to that was like, wow, this is the first time trans women are showing up, and it's a discussion about how they are like being inserted falsely into this narrative and trying to like sort of capture this this narrative in this way. Kate, I want to give you sort of also a chance to be a reader here and not just a responder. So do you want to talk about your take on the book, just in general, anything that you would kind of describe differently from Vicky and also your response to Vicky's critique of the book? Yeah, happily. I I guess I want to offer what I think is some important context. So one thing that Sarah Schulman, author of Let the Record Show, likes to talk about is the intentional process of historical amnesia that surrounds ACT UP and, in fact, the HIV AIDS movement in general, the intentional and unintentional obliteration of history that continues to shape an epidemic and its force in our lives, right? That's what the Act Up World History Project was started to confront because for decades, institutions of cultural memory in the US, cable TV, the New York Times, were heavily invested in covering up actual living memory of the crisis and of the enormous work that people had taken many of them sick and dying, many of them already dead, uh, had taken to change the conditions of that crisis. So the Act of World History Project is already an attempt to tell history differently and to enable us to understand how the shape of the epidemic changed. In 2011, Jim Hubbard and Sarah Shulman directed a documentary called United in Anger, that also tells this story that was around the same time that a much more famous and much more widely distributed documentary called How to Survive a Plague came out. And then Sarah Shulman effectively waged a 10-year-long culture war to once again change the narrative around HIV AIDS and around ACT UP because the narrative presented in How to Survive a Plague is the story of a handful of heroic men who had access to powerful people and were able to advocate for treatment. That's the narrative. That narrative is false. And this is what I think Let the Record Show does 
is she wants to illustrate all the dimensions according to which it's false. And so that's why the book is 700 pages. And that's what I got out of it as a reader, right? She needs you to understand everything that's happening in this space at this time and the reasons why ACT UP was effective. So that's why I disagree with Vicky that this is nostalgic because the point is to understand why it was effective. You also get to see an enormous degree of conflict, including the conflict that eventually split the organization. The other narrative turn that I think is really important is she refuses you the relief of 1996 and the development of antiretroviral therapies, which are now still the standard of care for being HIV positive that can prevent an HIV infection from turning into AIDS, right? You know, often when the story of the epidemic is told, it's told in terms of like people fought and fought and fought and died and died and died. And then, you know, um, there is this kind of epiphany of antiretrovirals and uh, there's a sense of like relief and salvation. And Let the Record Show really refuses that release because it ends in 1993. So we don't actually get to that point. She wants you to understand, she wants us to understand why this organization was effective and what it was able to do, which was not end the AIDS crisis, but it was to transform the AIDS crisis. That's her argument. And I think it's a persuasive argument. So that's one of the reasons why I responded to Vicky's review in the way that I did. It's why I, I think it's actually like important to really kind of take this book for what it offers and then to really kind of take up uh, the charge that it gives us of soberly assessing history. I'm sure you both have a lot more to say and could actually do this entire thing without me. But I think just to kind of break this down a little bit, I actually wanted to jump off of some language you were just using, Kay, about kind of the nostalgic versus the effective. And I think that actually is a, a kind of good encapsulation of two different, though also related, questions that have come up in and about the book. So I think that Shulman, she is herself responding to what she sees as a nostalgic vision of ACT UP and maybe even the entire moment of the AIDS crisis in its iteration in the 80s and 90s and how it's remembered now. And I think what Vicky was arguing in her review was that the book itself, perhaps ironically, winds up being nostalgic, maybe even in some of the same ways that the cultural documents that she critiques, like the documentary How to Survive a Plague and others. So Vicky, I would love it if you could say a little bit more about where you think the book did engage in a kind of politics of nostalgia. So yeah, I just wondered if you could start there. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think Kay's description of what the book is is setting out to do and try to do is very accurate. The, the book is setting out to critique this liberal whitewashing and forgetting and destruction of the of the movement and the lived and the lived experiences. And, and you know, she talks about rent and of course, like, you know, all these all these different sort of romanticizations of the of the tragedy of the era. And I agree that she is resisting that and she is coming from a more movement oriented and a more bottom up approach than the general history. Um, and that's valuable. And that's why I was interested in the book in the first place. And that's why I read the 700 pages. And, you know, that's why, that's why I was excited for it, uh, because those histories were so complicated and frustrating in so many different ways. I 
still, however, think that it falls into some of the same traps, precisely like in, for me, like in the way in which Shulman wants to really like identify ACT UP as, and I believe this is the direct quote, like the last successful social movement in America. I think we have to do a, a slightly more complicated and honest way of thinking about movement, which is like, Yes, it was incredibly successful. Yes, they made this huge change in the culture, and it's incredibly important that we remember it. And also, there were real problems and limits with ACT UP itself, with its methods, that I think she wants to point to, but doesn't actually really want to incorporate into the story. And I got really frustrated by it because of what I saw as this desire to mention the problems and limits of the ACT UP method, but still say, and yet it was the best, most successful way of organizing that's available. And I think that like that second half, that thing about it being like the, the way change is made, which is another you know way that she talks about, about the book, I think that that is a politics of nostalgia. And I think it, like, it, it, it really like does some damage to movements that have happened, that have occurred in the interim, as well as other HIV and AIDS activist and advocacy movements that ran parallel to ACT UP. And, and that, for me, feels like nostalgia, like a, a desire to defend ACT UP, perhaps from liberal recuperation, perhaps from bad histories, but still like a defensive posture around a certain organization and moment that, to me, I found unsatisfying. I mean, why can't we as readers simply acknowledge what it was? Like, I, why is that a problem? What injustice does it do to history to sit here in 2021 and collectively study the best, as far as we have, the most thorough presentation of the facts and to assess what was this collective able to do? What power was it able to build? How did it change language and representation and understanding? Why is that a problem, right? And let the record show, which I mean, like it's in the title, right? It really is very much like laying out, like this is what this organization could do. This is what it couldn't do. Sometimes verbatim, right? Because that's part of the, the method of the oral history is like you are engaging with people's representations of their own memory. And so like, there's a lot of elements of reading this book where you're like, I don't know if I believe that person, right? So I think that this is something that the book like really just like asks you to do. And I think that that's a useful exercise. And that's why I don't think it's nostalgic. The structure of feeling here is not nostalgia. The structure of feeling here is study, it's critique. It's like, we have to think about like both why it was effective and why it wasn't. Like this organization fell apart. It fell apart in six years. And she wants us to think about that as well. She says that people under situations of escalating crisis, when they were sick with grief, simply stopped being able to listen to each other, attempted to try to take over the organization in certain ways and to push through certain agendas, as opposed to doing the thing that she thought it was actually really good at, which was just letting everybody do what they already wanted to do. So she gives us the, the tools to understand how this organization stopped being effective as well. And I think that that also like cuts against the nostalgia because those of us who are engaged in similar and different struggles have to ask how it is possible for the organizations that we are in to remain strong organizations and effective organizations to be both principled and also to win things in the short term, to build power in the long term, not to lose sight of the things that we actually believe to be true. Like, these are all questions that we could take from these examples and bring to the work that we're doing. Thank you for that. Like, I, I appreciate, Kay, what you're saying. Like, I read the book and wrote the review and wanted to engage in this discussion and I'm on this podcast 
because I take these things really seriously, because I do want to learn from it, because I think we can learn from it. And I think that my review is very clear that like there's a lot to learn here and there's a lot of information, there's a lot to gain from the book. I think it is maybe the most urgent thing we can do is study these movements, right? Like as organizers. So I don't think I am arguing against that practice and I don't think that I my review argued against that practice. I think there is another argument here. I think the things you described in the book, Kay, about the ways that it talks about how the organization worked and the ways that it fell apart, like I agree that those are valuable. And that was what I wanted also from the movement history, and that's often what I want from movement history as well. But there is also an argument about the proper way of organizing in the book. And that's really what I was looking at, and, and, and that's where I think there is some nostalgia. But I agree with you that like the, the book is not overwhelmingly nostalgic. I would not describe that as the main affect of the book at all. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's really hard for people to be nostalgic about a period in which hundreds and hundreds of their friends died. The, the period that the book describes is a period in which 100,000 people died in the U.S. from AIDS, right? So I don't, I, you know, I think that that's really the reason why there's no nostalgia here. At the same time, clearly being a part of a movement in which people with, with relatively few resources, in some cases very few resources, develop the power to change their conditions is transformational. And being able to access or to touch that structure of feeling I think that that seems important for us to take into account. We can disagree with Sarah Shulman's particular assessments of what within this period is and is not correct for us now. She says, don't try to have a big consensus organization. Um, make it possible to have an organization in which people can disagree. And if they disagree, they can go and do their own thing. That's, that's a claim. And we can be like, oh, do I agree with that? Do I disagree with that? She has a big, like, direct democracy, mass democracy thing. Maybe we don't agree with that. That's not the way that most unions are run. That's not the way that some political parties are run. So maybe that's not how we want to organize. Maybe that's not the kinds of organizations we want to be involved in. We can disagree with those theses, um, and we can still get a lot out of this. I, I just want to sort of back up for one second and just kind of name a little bit more precisely some of the questions about politics of representation and inclusion and who is remembered as being part of what and what does it mean to make certain kinds of choices about the archive and choices about the questions one might ask about those archival sources or about other works of literature or film even, right? Or even like Stupid TV, which is something that came up and became actually kind of like a flashpoint in all of this, right? This this controversy that Shulman weighs into about the, the show Pose. So I, I, I wondered if we could kind of bring into the conversation what you both see as Shulman's argument about what I guess she would probably call identity. So like subject positions uh, of race, of gender, of trans or cisness, uh, of class, right? Like she has like a pretty specific argument about where people's subject positions fit or don't fit into movement work. And I think that where nostalgia and these really essential kind of movement building questions actually meet has to do with those questions. So I, I guess I wonder if you could just kind of each speak to that. Vicky, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. 
There is a big question historically about the presence and absence of trans people, especially trans people of color, in the record of queer liberation. Jules Gilles Peterson just gave a, a very interesting talk that's coming out of her new book about the sort of way in which trans women of color in particular end up being a sort of historical football who like their absence or their presence like ends up like acting as a symbol of a movement's righteousness or goodness and the way that you know people talk about you know black trans women led stonewall they threw the first brick and like that that they were like sort of everywhere in this history and how complicated that can be in terms of like both they were there and often sometimes they weren't there and in ACT UP they often weren't there in a real way. My review I think was perhaps understood as saying like, no, 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 they were really there and stepping into this really messy argument. Whereas like what I think I was feeling was like, no, no, they only appear in this book as not being there. Like I think it would have been very easy for Sarah Shulman in the book at any point to sort of say the status of trans people was different. We shouldn't project the politics of the trans present into the past like they weren't present at this event but also you know there's also the question of like a lot of trans women back then weren't identified as transsexual like the word trans wasn't even really uh present at that point for most of this book's history and so like people who hadn't had gender reassignment surgery often wouldn't identify as trans and those people might now today and they might not some of them would some of them wouldn't so like obviously there's like a lot of like messy difficulty with these questions in talking about the past and it's been a very loaded subject of debate for obvious reasons because as Kay pointed out so many people died and the history of trans people with HIV and the care of trans people living with HIV at the time, even through the 90s and 2000s, was really, really just absent. That history just doesn't exist. You know, there's um, Michelle Ross, who was part of the Terrence Higgins Trust, who was doing a lot of HIV and AIDS uh, activism and support through the 90s and 80s. She had an article about it just, just this year. And like, I just, can I read from this? Can I quote from this? I think it's really helpful. This is like talking about the 90s. There was no information whatsoever for trans people. A lot of trans people were anxious about how hormones and HIV medication might interact with one another, but it was impossible to find any information about this. There was no research, no funding to support trans people or include us in any kind of awareness. Nothing. That was the reality of it. And so none of those things I just said were really present in the book. In the book instead, there is sort of a, a moment when, you know, she says Pose was lying. They were making up this history, which again, like may well be true. And that was the one section in the book where trans women came up at all. And I don't think it would have been hard to have said the things I just said in 30 seconds at, at some point in the book. I think that that is the critique from a liberal politics of representation. It is faulting the book, not on the basis of the work that it does to make us understand like what is present in history, but going like, you didn't tick this box. That is what that reads like to me. And so I think this is one of the reasons why, like as someone you know who is like very interested in the, hi the history and relationship of trans people to movement work, I don't think that this is like a helpful analysis for understanding this book or this organization, this representation of history that Sarah Shulman has, has, has undertaken or act up itself. To me, it is relevant that Sarah Shulman, outside of this book, has, for what it's worth, been like a really enormous advocate for trans culture, kind of like in general. Like she encouraged the people who founded Topside Press, which was the first by and for trans people, like publisher of trans writing. She encouraged them to start with the press. She taught at a trans women's writing workshop that like I participated in five years ago. She's fo intentionally fostered that kind of like educational space. So I think that this reflex that's like, oh, she doesn't care 
I don't think that that is a fair way to understand, I, like, her contribution, which in many ways, like, actually, like, makes a lot of, like, trans writing and culture possible. Like, that's actually a project she's undertaken. She's just not undertaking it here. And it's because this is not the place to undertake it, because what she is attempting to critique is this desire to curate history into an image of what we believe it must have been and to aestheticize it and romanticize it on those terms rather than judge it for what it was. That, I think, is the project and that's the critique. And once again, it's a critique not of, that she poses not of trans people. It's a critique that she poses of Ryan Murphy and the culture industry that Ryan Murphy works for and that is so served by him. That is what we have to understand in this desire to, again, like aestheticize history. I agree that she would say that that was what she was doing. And I like hear that you're saying that the point you're making about what she's trying to do makes sense to me. I didn't experience it that way. I didn't encounter it that way. You know, it wasn't about checking off a box. It was about like, oh, like here's this section on trans women. Oh, here's this thing about how they weren't really there. And then they never like recur in any way. That to me strikes me as a way of historicizing the movement that doesn't talk about all the complicated things that I've just mentioned, which I don't think are very, like would have been very hard to, to talk about. I mean, but it's a history of, it's not a history of the AIDS movement. It's a history of Act of New York. Therefore, and to a certain extent, like the content of this book has to be determined in a positive sense by what people did, right? Um, because it's, you can't write a history about what they didn't do. Right. So if you're going to write a history of where you talk about, you know, the stop the church action and you talk about changing the death, the CDC definition of AIDS and you talk about getting 300 Haitian people out of immigration detention at Guantanamo and finding them housing in New York City, it all has to be determined by what people actually did. That's the mandate. So I don't think it's a problem to not talk about what people didn't do. But she does talk about something. I'm responding to a paragraph in the book. I'm not like saying like, where were they? Like the trans women are there once. Yes, to talk about a misrepresentation of it. Okay, I'm gonna read the paragraph. Interestingly, in an episode that aired in 2019, the television series Pose, produced by Ryan Murphy and Janet Mock, depicted ACT UP's action at St. Patrick's Cathedral, but added black trans characters from the series going to the demonstration, performing civil disobedience and being taken away by the police. In reality, one trans woman was arrested at St. Patrick's, but they were right. ACTUP facilitator Kathy Otter, later Otterson, writing on the ACTUP alumni Facebook page, Robert Vasquez Pacheco and Moises Augusto Rosario both expressed anger that corporate representations of ACTUP inserted non-existent people of color while ignoring the people of color who actually were there and did the work. Once again, ACTUP still had no control over its own representation, but this was 2019, 32 years after its founding. This is a paragraph not about how trans people weren't in ACT UP. It is a paragraph about the misrepresentations of history, including misrepresentations that ignore who actually was present. But this is what I'm saying, though, is that like that's not that's there in the text. But there is all it is also the first time that trans people are appearing and trans women are appearing in the text. And that, that matters. That, that matters structurally. For a liberal politics of representation, yes. But if we are people who do not subscribe to that liberal politics of representation, it should not matter. I guess I'm not necessarily sure that a liberal politics of representation is, in fact, the only rubric by which these questions could matter. It seems to me that just like in the situation that we're talking about here with this paragraph, it seems to me that there's actually a couple of things being conflated in that paragraph 
Pose is a trashy television show, right? I've seen one episode of it, and like uh, the main thing I remember was that you know, like the they're like filming on the Chelsea Piers, but it's like the Chelsea Piers of now that house like uh, expensive mini golf or whatever. But like the new gentrified Chelsea Piers are kind of playing the old Chelsea Piers of the '80s that were like best known as a place where people had sex. So this is not to defend pose, but it did seem to me in that paragraph that that critique of a work of of fiction, of television, was kind of being asked to do a lot to kind of uphold a larger critique of movement history that would even ask questions about historical absences. And I I guess I would say I'm not necessarily sure that a work of movement history can't be a history of what people didn't do as well as what they did do. It seems to me that in fact, it's always both. Yeah, I mean, like, I think that my main like response to this is I just don't think that this is like the most interesting question to ask about this enormously interesting book. To me, as someone who is very interested in the relationship of trans people to social movement, I just don't think that that, like, that asking, like, where were the trans people in ACT UP and where are the trans people in Let the Record Show is the most interesting way to engage with this particular history. To me, it's always a gotcha, right? It's always looking for the person who doesn't actually have your back, the person who is not meaningfully engaged with your struggle. I think the, the other thing that I want to bring out here is that I think if we look not synchronically but diachronically outside of the framework of the history that this book represents like on the the timeline moving forward then I think we can say the relationship of trans people to act up is phenomenal and it is remarkable and it goes very deep. This is something that Bryn Kelly, the late writer Bryn Kelly, talked about a lot while she was alive. Um, not necessarily act up, but to the AIDS movement in general. One of the last things that she wrote publicly, it was a blog post in which someone was was like, I'm having a hard time taking my HIV medication. And and um, she talks about like, she has this phrase where she's like, you have tiger blood. Um, uh, uh, you are the... I think, what, what does she say specifically? Bastard stepchild of global capitalism and homegrown social democracy or, or something like that. You basically like, you have like access to this thing and therefore you have tiger blood. So take them pills, which it was just like quite beautiful, right? But one of the things that she's like attempting to implot there is the relationship between HIV positive trans people in the present and this particular history in the past and a relationship in which like, oh, this kind of prior moment of political activity is helping me stay alive right now. That's That seems to be important to pay attention to. The other thing is like, I've been talking to my students about this for a couple of weeks now. I don't just don't think you can understand like trans culture in the present without like thinking about in terms of AIDS, um, in terms of the HIV AIDS epidemic, in terms of how that was like fought and politicized in certain ways. So if we broaden this out diachronically, then these questions do become interesting, but synchronically, I don't think they're they're terribly interesting. I, I also just wonder if, um, if you can kind of connect this back to the questions of larger movement strategy that, that we were talking about earlier. Um, you know, like, 
One of the claims that Sarah Shulman makes in this book, and again, this is a place where we can like agree or disagree with her, right? Um, is she says that ACT UP, even though it was a majority white and male organization, was capable of significant feminist and anti-racist wins because of the particular kinds of coalitions that were built within this organization and the ways that it was directed towards keeping people alive in certain ways. And that seems, I think that that's important for us to pay attention to because one of the things that she, I believe, is talking about is the fact that political identity and political consciousness are not the same thing. That, that neither is necessary nor sufficient for the other, right? And that, I think, is actually a very important insight insofar as it helps us get out of a trap that people can fall into of assuming that because someone has a particular social position, they have the right understanding of political events. And that, I think, that is a trap. It is it is a really bad trap. And we need, it, so it's good to reject that. And I think that that's one thing that this book does well. Yeah, and I, I was also actually going to turn to the question of of, um, of the racial makeup of, of ACT UP. So I really appreciate uh, that we're on the same wavelength here, Kay. So I think, like, what's interesting about what's going on for me is that, like, I don't think that you are misdescribing what Shulman was trying to do with the book. I just found it unsatisfactory because I think she's, she's trying to have it both ways, is how I experience this. Again, reading just the book itself, just the text, like not like outside of, of, of you know, broader questions of, of her activism or, 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 or what she's done in her life, which all, you know, the stuff with Topside is great. And obviously like Topside produced a lot of great books. Like it's all very important and worth supporting. And I mean, I was certainly not trying to call her transphobic in her thinking and life. The way that the book talks about that, I think you're right. It does, it wants to, but it wants to say superlatively and in a really dramatic way, this is the best way for things to work. And she, she says over and over again, you know, the presence, the over-representation of cis white men in ACT UP allowed them to get into boardrooms and like had all these tactical advantages. So the way that you're talking about, about like identity not being necessarily definitional of your politics. Like, I completely agree with that. I think that it's important that we be able to imagine both that people are totally products of their own personal experience, the moments they come from, the identity just sort of produces sort of like statistical likelihoods that certain kinds of attitudes will be present because of experiences, and you know, but it's not, it's not destiny, it's not fate. And there are reactionaries and revolutionaries among all classes, races, and genders, right? Absolutely the case. The question that I think happens is that when she talks about the problem of overrepresentation of white men in ACT UP as only a problem of a bad representation of politics, which is to say, yeah, it was bad there were too many white men, but she doesn't actually, to my taste and like to my to like how I experienced the book, analyze the way, for example, the overwhelming makeup of cis white men may have interacted with the political like direct action choices that were made about the levels of, of action that they were willing to take, about the ways that things were organized. And I think that that matters. I do think that that's a misrepresentation because when she talks about, for instance, she talks about Storm the NIH, which was an action that ACT UP undertook in 1990, I believe. And she talks about how this was an action that was directed by the treatment activists. And she said that when she, that they had a particular goal which was to set up a consulting organ within the NIH that would include people who are HIV positive. But they didn't actually represent this adequately to 
the rank and file membership. And so people in the rank and file had a really poor understanding of why this action happened in the way that they, that it did. And there was a lot of dissatisfaction around it, right? And so she does actually talk about, like, without reducing, like, the inside activists to the white men versus the outside activists, she's, she's more nuanced than that. But she does talk about how the problems with people who assumed that they could walk into a boardroom and get a meeting changed and in some cases negatively affected what this organization was capable of, right? The thing that I, I think she does do and she's like, okay, some of these people had more power, right? Like Larry Kramer went to one of these places with like one of the people who like founded Burroughs Welcome, right? And so like that changes things for access. So she's, I think, approaching that empirically. Like what could they do? And there are these moments where you can see this organization getting into real problems based on some people believing that this access is good, uh, some people believing that it's not good, some people not wanting to be strategic about how they use it, some people being like overly strategic and guarding how they access it. I think that that's there. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what I mean by saying she has it both ways, because I think like some of it is there. And then there is simultaneously an argument being made about the mode of organization that ignores the consequences of that. So even though I like, I agree, I remember that, that, that chapter in the book, I think she does do a good job of like describing internal conflict within the organization around these problems. But there is an overarching theory and argument that's being made that I, that I disagree with that I think is overshadowing the way these, these effects matter. And that, that's just, that may just be a difference in our reading. I'm not disputing your claim about like that's presence, but I don't think that the way that that gets incorporated into an argument overwhelmingly takes into account like the questions that we're talking about here, which are incredibly generative and important. I have a question. Can both of you say how you would actually describe the organization of ACT UP that Shulman is talking about in the book? Because I think that this is something that's been kind of coming up throughout this conversation. But I'm not sure if we've actually quite said yet, like, how was ACT UP organized? And how does Shulman see it as having been organized? I think that one thing that particularly jumped out at me in the debate that I've seen you having in print is, is uh, Vicky, you sort of portray a kind of continuity between ACT UP and a lot of nonprofit type activism um, that followed, and K, you seeing kind of a break there. I just wonder if we could um, just kind of like get down to brass tacks a little bit on this. Yeah, for sure. So um, I think that what Sarah is representing is what she believes to be a vanguard organization, and she does use that word, which is interesting. Is she using that word in a Leninist sense? I don't know. But she means basically a self-selecting group of people who study the problem they are attempting to address, make themselves the expert on it, and develop the power to address it without being the sole beneficiaries of that social process that they're undertaking, right? So she highlights the, the sheer numbers. She's like, at its biggest, ACT UP was like you know, 7,000 people at an action. So that's not, that's not very large. But these are people who have like designed solutions to problems, who make themselves the experts on problems and who attempt to organize other people into this program, 
So, so that's the vanguard side of it. The democracy side of it is that it was guided by the Monday night meetings in which proposals were brought to the floor. They were debated. They were voted on. There were committee structures that were, I think, basically entirely self-selecting. And then the informal structures of the affinity groups, which people used when they were going to you know, do direct action and get arrested or do higher risk stuff. So this is how Sarah Shulman describes the organizational structure of ACT UP. The reasons why this is a far remove from NGO nonprofitism, right, is that it actually had a large organized base of people who were able to, like, independently develop strategy and bring stuff to the floor for debate. That's not the way that nonprofits work. It's like in, in, in most nonprofits, it is impossible to be a member and to have an idea about what that thing should do. And it's also there's also a question of funding structure. Act Up was like they fundraised a lot through things like, you know, auctioning off like, you know, posters and shit like that. But it didn't receive grants and it wasn't subject to the kinds of conservatism that nonprofits of say the mid 90s up to today are subject to because all of these bodies are are chasing the tail of funding and therefore are hugely limited in what they can do because they are reliant on this kind of funding. It was a member funded organization and so that puts it more on a continuity with things like a dues structure, even though it didn't collect dues. And that, I think, also concretely changes the power that is present in this organization. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that that assessment of, of how Shulman describes it. And I actually think that there is a spectrum of political organizations that this has become the model for, for a reason, because precisely because the small amount of people like managed to make a lot of change. I think a lot of nonprofits think of themselves as having this internal democracy, pretend that they have it, pretend they have a membership base that they can activate. And sometimes some of them get closer to it. Something that we might think of as a close model now would be something like Extinction Rebellion, which I see as like somewhere in between a nonprofit model because the people at the top are sort of operating like a nonprofit, but there's also a lot of bottom-up energy and ideas and, and, and process happening in Extinction Rebellion. I don't know a ton about Extinction Rebellion, I'm not a member, so I don't want to like over make claims, but that's my impression from reading critiques and, and talking to people who are members. I think that the the argument that, that Shulman is making in the book is that this particular model of change is because of the vanguard theory of power and of change, that like small groups of people who become experts are the ones capable of organizing others and creating change. Because of that theory of change, this imagination of this kind of group, like ACT UP is seen as the best possible mode of organization. And I think like that is consistent. That is a consistent argument that Shulman makes. I'm not trying to pick out a hypocrisy in her work. You know, I think she really is committed to that. And I think it's wrong. And like, that's like, that's where the, the, the question comes up. And so it's not about it being like continuous with like the biggest nonprofits, many of which have literally nothing to do with any kind of street action and are just a way of laundering capitalist tax breaks. But there are also a lot of nonprofits that I've interacted with in movement spaces that are in fact pretty small, very poorly funded. They have one or two grants and they are working, you know, they're activating people like me, trying to get people like me to organize and act with them in a way that I think is very similar to how ACT UP functions. So there is like the nonprofit, you know, the nonprofit world is huge. A lot of the big ones have nothing, look nothing like ACT UP. I think some of the smaller ones do look like it. But that's, I think you'd probably agree with that, I imagine. Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, I think that the the assessment that Extinction Rebellion is attempting to do this kind of, again, like sort of like post-civil rights thing is probably correct. 
they've clearly been less effective so far. Um, there's lots of reasons why. I, I do want to, because Vicky, you keep saying best. I, I, I want to just like read a sentence where, you know, Sarah does talk about like, you know, she's talking about the racial and gender makeup of the organization. And she says, assessing this history is not a game of call out. Instead, is it, an, it is an effort to really understand and make clear how the AIDS rebellion succeeded and to face where it failed in order to become more conscious and deliberate and therefore effective today. So that... I think is actually very important because she is giving us, once again, she's giving us the resources to assess failure. So if she ever says best, right, she is also following it up with and was so deeply imperfect as to have failed and to have eventually become ineffective. And that prompts the question of what can we do better, which is the question of what is to be done. So I am not saying that this book is perfect. I'm saying that this book is useful, right? It is useful because it is giving us tools to think about this history in a really concrete way, then to think about questions of organizational form. Yeah, and I, I I agree with that. That's why I read the history, and like I've read, I read lots of history of movements that I would critique very, very intensely, and pay a lot of attention to things that I think are less helpful than the ACT UP model in some ways. But I I do think that there's a difference here, which is like that I think some of these claims about superlativeness and about the importance of the model matter to the history and to the book. And what I'm hearing from UK, which like is also like a, just a different opinion, is like you think that that's not that relevant, and that what's important is the details of the internal struggle. That's certainly why I read the book. I certainly read the book not for the argument, but for the details um, and for the way that it narrativizes the way that it works. And I think that it, it can be valuable for that. I also think though that often the way that these arguments get framed and talked about. Um, in terms of especially superlatives or like what it is useful for, what the author is claiming that the thing is useful for, even if we as individuals can obviously be trusted to not just like believe everything and like to not, you know, like obviously like to, to come with a critical mind, I think it matters in the same way that like right now we have seen a lot of nostalgia for the Soviet Union and for the Leninist party formation and for Bolshevism, right? And like, I think it matters if you say, the Bolsheviks was like the most successful revolution of the 20th century or not. I think that matters, even though I think it's really valuable to study people who say it was and people who say it wasn't. Is communism a nostalgia? Communism as practiced in the 20th century by national liberation moment, movements and understanding them in terms of sort of like armed struggle. I think there is a nostalgic attachment to certain forms of movement and struggle. There's also a communist horizon, which is obviously not nostalgic, but is in fact what we're all fighting for. I mean, I just disagree that a kind of contemporary interest in communism is actually a form of nostalgia. I mean, certainly there are some nostalgic people out there, but I don't think that that's necessarily like determining a kind of sober interest in like history, including the history of revolutionary struggle. One could also kind of push back at that and, and, and say like, why is it bad to be palpably transformed by an example of a situation in which people with relatively or very few resources collectively develop the power to change their conditions. I find that like deeply moving all the fucking time. Hopefully not in such a way that it distracts from a sober analysis of what our conditions are. But like, I don't think that it's bad to go like, I'm looking at this thing and feel chills down my spine because like, look how people were capable of transforming their lives and the lives of millions of other people. I think that's good. But I, so I clearly like agree. I like, I think that the act of the study is the act of honor and respect. I think it is, it's not about the moment of sort of spine 
tingling like, wow, this is incredible. It's about what you do with that. It's not about like the fact of studying history and being moved by it, which I think is an incredibly valuable and important experience that I have constantly. I think this is really, really getting at the heart of a lot of these questions. There's so much historical trauma at the center of this book. And, you know, I think in different ways, sort of overt or repressed, let's say, in responses to it and in just in any of these kinds of conversations. The way that you were both just talking at the end there about the kind of affective responses that we have reading history, the kind of moments of like, almost like breaking through and like seeing something or like history becoming real, right? I think that those moments are so easy to either like lose sight of or to kind of like manipulate into something that like does political work that like one doesn't necessarily support like just in the doing of it. And I think that is a thing that's really interesting and sad also about the ways that these conversations play out sometimes. There's like, there's a generational aspect here. You know, the fact that Shulman lived through all of this and very evidently has like such a sense of a kind of mission of like needing to, you know, as the title of the book tells us, let the record show, right? What she sees as having really happened, whether that mission is ultimately a righteous crusade or one that kind of like uses her own historical presence to kind of sideline critiques of the way that she saw things, right? I think is is maybe one way of framing the question that we're talking about. This stuff uh, that is incredibly important gets buried sometimes in the way that stuff plays out online or in communal discourses um, or in the weird kind of intersection between the two. And I wanted to take one more step back and ask a sort of meta question before we wrap up. What are the conditions in which, like, these conversations can happen in like a generative way and what are the conditions in which they get shut down or become, you know, more poisonous? Um, it's a great question. Even stuff that like trans people wrote about ourselves like 10 years ago, everyone sounds crazy. Never mind like 20 or 30 and you read like, you know, Mira Soleil Ross just calling herself gender described in 1993 and it's like, what? So this kind of like this intergenerational question, even with among trans people, I think is like really, really, really important. Also temperatures rise very quickly because of the trauma Ari, that you're pointing to. You know, I'm reminded here of, of a different essay by um, Bryn Kelly, one that I like a lot. It's an essay that Bryn wrote, um, unlike most of her writing, she actually wrote it out in her own name, um, not under pseudonym, uh, which I think testifies to the degree to which she really cared about it. And it's about the death of Adrian Rich. And she talks about like how a lot of young people are dismissive of specifically older lesbians. <laughs> and she's talking about like people who are publicly mourning a transphobe. And so she's talking about like how hard this is. And, and at the same time, she's saying, we have an enormous amount to learn here. So I think that I just one thing that seems important is a kind of patience in the face, even sometimes of other people's 
irrationality. One thing that was true about the active Facebook page, the active alumni Facebook page, I'm not on Facebook, but I heard about this, is that they love Pete Buttigieg, right? And that's like a little cringe. It's a little stupid. At the same time, it's mostly harmless. If it was not harmless, we would have to find ways to address it. And so like this kind of, this moment where we like try to have respect, real respect for people who've like gone through the shit and who act out in certain ways, right? And who are wrong in certain ways. So like this respect doesn't take the form of thinking that they're right. It just means that we need to develop some of the patience, including the patience for times when other people are gonna be like weird or where our communication styles are simply going to pass by each other. And understanding our own fallibility here, I think that's one thing. And I think just like creating situations, actively creating situations in which there was real interface, and interface doesn't mean agreement, right? But real interface where we can listen, which is like our number one skill as organizers, right? Um, is simply to listen and, the, and thereby to develop the skills to hear what people are saying and to know how we have to respond. I think that those are the tasks for us. And I think they're really important because we have so much to learn. Yeah, and I, I remember that piece um, very well from from the compilation. It's, it's an important uh, essay. I recommend it to everyone as well. But I think like because of the way that these conflicts go, and I think this one around this book is like a pretty good example around this review, is that like we have a very strong tendency to associate both ourselves and the person pushing the idea with the ideas themselves, right? And that there's like this way in which we're like, okay, like what matters is the ideas, but of course, like feelings get involved no matter what, like as Kay was pointing to, especially when there's a really traumatic, but any anyone who's been through really intense social movement will know that like when you talk about it, if someone disagrees, like it feels a lot heavier than just a disagreement, you know, like it feels really, really intense. Precisely because in those moments of movement and struggle, we like saw the whole world open up before us and we felt so much like positive possibility that like the idea that someone would sort of critique that feels really scary. How can you critique this moment, you know? And I think along with what Kay said, which I think was all like spot on, I think we could also develop a way of accepting and listening to critique and disagreement and working on, because we won't be able to do it immediately, and, we, and I'm certainly you know no expert on it, but working on being able to dissociate ourselves and our feelings and experiences from the ideas that are being argued to the extent that it's possible, which again is not like an idea, like we can't be perfect rational subjects, we come from where we are, but being able to really take people who are in, acting in good faith, and sometimes they aren't, people who are acting in good faith as having a similar project to us and being able through the feelings that we have, which are legitimate. We should process the feelings separately with our friends, you know, maybe with those people like not in public or something. We should process those feelings. We should talk. We should have solidarity and friends. We should like do this work. And then when it comes to these ideas, we should be able to critique without throwing away the person who makes the mistake. And like, I think like that, one of the things that like I was hoping my review would do, but I think it wasn't understood as such, was to like critique the book without being like, this project sucks, showman sucks, which is which are not things I felt when I was writing the review. I thought it was an important book and that's why I wanted to write about it. And I think like maybe learning to move away from a way of thinking about critique and production of thought and political argument as connected to the production of an individual who is like speaking those thoughts, since obviously we only speak 
with the knowledge of everyone who's come before us. You know, especially with, with uh, as Kay was saying, with trans politics and the rupture that was produced by the AIDS crisis. Like, it's so hard. It is so easy to feel like orphans in, you know, in this moment. And that, like, every five years, everything changes and then everyone's wrong. And, like, it's really hard to, like, hold that um, as a historical knowledge based in trauma while still fighting for what we believe is right in the moment, but also not treating people who disagree as disposable. And I hope conversations like this one, where I don't think we came to a substantive agreement, are really valuable in that anyway, because I think like we sort of both together held these different different opinions and different positions, expressed them in a, I think, largely respectful and caring and careful way, because what matters, I think, to both of us is that we overthrow this world as it exists now, and that we completely destroy cis heteropatriarchy, white supremacy, the conditions that produce pandemics and then make the people dying from pandemics disposable. We have to create a totally new world. We're going to disagree on how we get there um, very often. And we need to learn to do have that disagreement be generative and respectful and also to know where the lines are in terms of like, OK, actually, that's a line for me that I can't cross. Being able to manage those things is difficult and complicated and is work we're all going to have to do as organizers and revolutionaries. I'm so, so happy again to have gotten to have this conversation. I think this is um, actually one of the few debates I feel like I've ever seen, let alone gotten to kind of moderate where both people both have substantive disagreement and truly want to overthrow the world and make a new one. And it's so exciting to um, get to actually do this. And I hope that we get to have many more of these. I um, wish that we were all in the same place and could go uh, get a drink now. But I'm going to say goodnight and that this uh, has been uh, an episode of On the Nose, which is the Jewish Currents podcast, and that you should subscribe and review us and tell your friends to listen. And you should subscribe to the magazine. And you should go to our website, which is www.jewishcurrents.org, um, and all of that stuff to get uh, more conversations like this one. Thank you for joining us. Uh, and thank you so much to Kay and, and Vicky for joining us tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you both. It was great. Thank you.